Ari says that I chose this topic. I'll take his word for it. I'll take his word for it. It is really a summary of things that we, we dealt with really in the whole lecture series. I'll talk about that and then talk about the future as best as I can. Please remember, I've said this to you on a number of occasions, I am a historian, I am not a prophet. It is very, very difficult to predict the future. It just is virtually impossible. But I will give it a shot. And, but I will speak, of course, in the most general of terms. We began, if you remember, we began really about 250 years ago, sometime in the middle of the 18th century. And a number of things took place which had enormous impact upon our people. Let me begin by saying to you that in the 1950s, some of you may remember, probably the greatest historian or one of the greatest minds of the age, Arnold Toynbee, referred to the Jewish people as a fossil, that we had exhausted our possibilities and presumably we were going to disappear in the not too distant future. Professor Toynbee was wrong. We were rocked and we were socked in the last 250 years, but we did not disappear. We continue to be a thriving and contributing group of people. We benefit ourselves and we have benefited humanity enormously in the last 250 years, and one could even argue most particularly in the period since the Second World War. But the point in all of this is we are the ever-dying people, but we never die. We always go on. Now, the events, of course, won the Enlightenment. I begin with the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment offered new possibilities to the Jews. I'm not going to rehash philosophy 101 or, or European history 101 for you, but I did mention John Locke. John Locke and a whole group of others, the ones that are known in French history as the philosophes, these are the men and these are the women that are going to say things that were not said before. Succinctly put, they were going to say the Jews are human beings. They have the right, they should have the rights of other human beings. And since all human beings really are endowed with basic qualities, with basic rights, Jews should have them as well. Very often, interestingly enough, some of the people who said this had a jaundiced view of the Jews. The classic example is Voltaire. Voltaire wanted the Jews to be free and equal but everybody else, with everyone else, but he said some very unnice things about us. Nonetheless, he supported the emancipation. So to give you an idea of what the Enlightenment really meant, I'll give you two quotes. They tell you a lot, and although they do not relate directly to the Jews, indirectly they do. One of them is from Voltaire, the other one is probably from Diderot. Voltaire is supposedly to have said he addressed himself to the Spanish people, to the Spanish government at the time. And he said, he's writing, of course, this, he's saying this in the middle of the 18th century, and he's saying, Spaniards, a hundred years from now, in the 19th century, when people will say that we in the 18th century were civilized, you Spaniards will prove them wrong. And the reason for that is... Something to the, well, the reason for that was that until 1827, the Inquisition continued in Spain. And then there's the other one. Frenchmen, we shall not be free until we last strangle the last cardinal in the intestines of the last bishop. That's not a moderate statement. The attack upon the church, the use of reason, 
the belief that the Jews are human beings, this will open up possibilities. And then, of course, from our side will come change. The Jews, no matter how isolated they may be, are a small minority living amongst a larger group of people. Even if there are ghettos, you cannot keep the ideas out. And so, from the Enlightenment will come the Haskalah, the Jewish Enlightenment, where a number of men, the most particularly, the most important of them, Moses Mendelssohn, will argue, and I think I discussed this at least with some of you, will argue the idea, our time is coming. It's not yet here, but there's a new dawn coming, and we Jews have got to prepare ourselves for it. And by that he meant, learn the language of the country in which you are in, learn secular subjects, study other things besides Talmud and Torah, and in fact become citizens of the country, real citizens of the country in which you are in. Now, I think I mentioned on one occasion that for all of this, the man who, of course, initiates the Haskalah is Moses Mendelssohn. Moses Mendelssohn is the Jewish Socrates. That's how people refer to him. But for all of his achievements, he's considered to be one of the greatest philosophers of the time. Frederick the Great will never make him, never make him, a member of the Prussian Academy of Sciences, and one sympathetic Gentile said, Moses Mendelssohn is a brilliant man. He lacks only one thing, a foreskin. <laughs> and as a result, of course, what I'm saying to you is that and the Enlightenment is beginning to open the gates. The Haskalah is preparing our people for a new world. And then, of course, September 27, 1791. That is the French Revolutionary Government emancipates the Jews. The first government on the continent of Europe to emancipate its Jewish population was France. The revolution is good for the Jews. So what all of this means is our people are going to be faced with challenges. Challenges of confronting a new world, a world of modernity, a world of secularism, a world of science, a world of mathematics, a world of art, a world of music. All of these things which people in the ghetto really had no, no real understanding of, now it's open to them. And the emancipation is going to have enormous impact upon our people. We are like a coiled spring. They've pushed us down for so many years, and then, boom, we are free with everyone else. And what's going to happen, of course, is tremendous Jewish achievement in a whole variety of areas. Listen to the statistics. This is not a lecture in Jewish chauvinism. It is simply to make a point to you. The Jewish population of Vienna at the end of the 19th century, in the early part of the 20th century, was about 9%. One out of every three students at the University of Vienna was Jewish. In Prussia, the largest of the German states, out of every 33, excuse me, out of every 100,000 Catholics, 33 in the universities. Out of every 100,000 Protestants, 58. Out of every 100,000 Jews, 518. There is nothing like this. We are moving ahead in a whole variety of areas. In addition to that, of course, it is as the night follows the day, that dialectical relationship that I've often spoken to you about. For some people, we are moving too far too fast. And that European anti-Jewishness, based upon religion, initially based upon religion, will sow the soil or really prepare the soil for some more or harsher types of anti-Jewish thinking. 
In other words, what I'm trying to tell you is that some people are going to say, they killed Jesus. Why should they have all this money? Why should they be in privileged positions? And then, of course, there were new currents of anti-Semitism that were coming, far more ferocious, far more vituperative. By the end of the 19th century, there would be people out there, not only in Germanic Europe, but in France and Russia as well, who would argue that the problem or the evil of the Jews is not contained in their Talmud or their Torah, it is in their blood. They wouldn't use the term genes or chromosomes because they didn't use those terms in that period of time. But they would argue that the essence of being a Jew was in that blood. And the, you don't have to be a logician to come to the conclusion of what that means. If the evil, the Jewish evil, is in the blood, then kissing the cross, conversion, shaving the beards, assimilating into society, making contributions to society, it will have no impact upon people who think like that. That is, again, the road to Auschwitz is being paved, really at the end of the 19th and the early part of the 20th century, because of the new anti-Semitism, the anti-Semitism that is based upon race. I mentioned, I think, again, I've lectured in so many places that I'm not sure who was there and who heard this, but since I was told in the second grade and since I practice it in my own classes, that is, I believe in the principle that repetition is the mother of learning, therefore I will repeat it again. And that is, I may have used an example, and that is that in 1913, a true story, a group of elderly German Jews are sitting at a table in Berlin, they're drinking coffee, and one says to the other, I had a dream last night, a terrible dream, it was a nightmare. In the dream, somebody was taking Jewish infants and dropping them into fires. And the other German Jews said to him, that is the dumbest thing I have ever heard. And then he went on to say, not even those French bastards would do anything like that. That is, for German Jews and for many Jews living outside of Germany in Europe, the idea that the apocalypse would descend upon our people, that it would come from Germany, was inconceivable. Germany, the land of music. Germany, the land of philosophy. Germany, the land of medicine. Germany with its great universities. And France, on the other hand. This is the time of the France of the Dreyfus Affair. Russia with its pogroms. Romania with its terrible anti-Semitic ideas and practices. That it would come from Germany was inconceivable to German Jews and the overwhelming majority of Jews living in Europe. And the Jews will live through, and this, of course, is what is going to change everything. I have dwelt on this at some length. World War I is the seminal event of the 20th century. You cannot understand the 20th century unless you understand the impact of World War I. It is World War I that will bring Lenin and the communists to power. It is World War I that will lead, bring Mussolini and the fascists to power. And any student of the rise of the Nazis will testify again and again and again that it is the fear of communism, it's the Treaty of Versailles, all of the consequences of Versailles that lead to the accession to power of Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party on January 30th of 1933. So the Jews, as I'm trying to say to you, are rocked and socked by a multitude of changes. And yet what we see here is that the ever-dying people becomes an ever-adapting people. Our people adapt to the changes that are taking place. To be sure, at all times in Jewish history, 
there were Jews who said, I'll use the old, the, the old language, Dayenu, enough is enough. And so a number of Jews will leave our people. There's a constant stream, in some places larger than in others. In Berlin at the end of the 18th century, 10% of the Berlin Jewish community converts to Christianity. There will be places with even larger numbers. The reason for that is, I, made a, I, I said it with Mendelssohn, if Mendelssohn can't be accepted, the greatest mind of the Jewish people perhaps in the 18th century, then what about all those bright Jewish boys? Again, I'm not using the females, I'm not talking about females, because at this period of time, most Jewish females all over Europe did not receive a very good education, Jewish or otherwise. But what about those Jewish young men who went to the university, were allowed to go to the university, or became what were called autodidacts. That is, they studied by themselves under tutors. What could they do? The universities would accept them as students, but would never accept them as professors. Heinrich Heine, for example, is the most glaring example. He converts probably one of the greatest, of the, one of the two greatest of all German poets, and he converts to Christianity. And when, of course, uh, he's asked, why did he do it? He says, quote, it's my ticket to civilization. Or this Leon Kvolsen. This is a boy about 12 years old. He knows 10 languages. By the time he's 20, he comes from Pinsk. He says that by the time he's 20, he knows 14 languages. He is a great linguist. He can't get a university position, so he converts to Russian Orthodoxy. When he's a much older man, a group of reporters asked him, Professor Kvolsen, did you convert out of conviction? That is, did you convert out of because you really believed in the Russian Orthodox faith? Or did you do it out of opportunism? I mean, did you do it for, for another reason? And he replied, I did it out of conviction. And the young reporters were astonished because they knew he wasn't a religious man. They said, you really became a member of the Orthodox faith? He said, no, 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 no. I said, conviction, he said. I was convinced that it was be a, better to be a professor at the University of St. Petersburg than to be a Muhammad in Pinsk. That is, to be a Hebrew school teacher in Pinsk. So some of our people are going to drift away. Some of them are going to be caught up in the new rationalism and the new secularism. That is, they don't believe at all. They don't believe. So if I don't believe, why should I suffer for being Jewish? That is, for belonging to a religion in which I don't believe. So people leave there. Others are going to be attracted to the new ideologies, socialism and communism. This is, I said to you, and I've used this expression before, one Hungarian Jewish writer refers to communism and socialism as the fata morgana, the fatal temptation of European Jewry. A number of Jews will move into the ranks of left-wing movements. And again, I must tell you, I'll give you the figures here. But perception, remember, how many times have I said this? It is not reality that is important in history. It is the perception of reality that is important. So here's a good figure. Here's a good, good basis of figures. In 1939, there were probably 30 million Poles. Out of the 30 million Poles, somewhere between 3 and 3.5 three and million were Jewish. The total population is 30 million. Of the 30 million people living in Poland, 50,000 were members of the Polish Communist Party. That's 50,000 out of 30 million people, not a large number. But of the 50,000, at least 20,000 were men and women of Jewish extraction. 
The same thing operated in Hungary. The same thing operated in Lithuania. The overwhelming majority of Jews were non-communist or anti-communist, but a disproportionate number of the communists turned out to be Jews. The reason for this, again, some Jews looking at the poverty, looking at the anti-Semitism, bought into the idea that Marxism was a panacea, that comes the socialist revolution, there will be no more anti-Semitism. So we will lose people for that reason as well. We will lose people again, it really is a repetition of what I was saying in terms of secularism and the new rationalism, for the same reason that we lost people to the Greeks in a much earlier period of history. Those Jews in Judea, when they saw mathematics, Greek mathematics, Greek medicine, Greek art, you know what some of them did? They had doctors, how they did this I do not know, that reconstructed their foreskin so that they could participate in Greek society. So we've always lost people, but the overwhelming majority of Jews are going to remain loyal in one way or another, and they will adapt to modernity. Let me give you an example. I asked, how many of you have been to Auschwitz? How many of you have been to the town of Auschwitz? All right. In the town of Auschwitz, there is a reconstructed synagogue. Auschwitz was a shtetl. Before World War II, 60% of Auschwitz was Jewish. And in the synagogue, this reconstructed synagogue, there are pictures, photographs on the wall of the Jews who lived in that town in the 1920s and the 1930s. One of the pictures has Jews in the town in classic Hasidic garb. They have the long coats, the kapota, the, the payas, and the beards. That's one photograph. And alongside of that is another photograph. It's a bunch of Jewish men and women, young Jewish men and women, who are celebrating New Year's Eve of 1930. They look like flappers. That is, they look like our people looked, some of the, the American people looked in the 1920s. There is that myth, remember, and I've spoken about that. The myth usually propagated by the Orthodox community. That is today. A myth that says that all the Jews in Eastern Europe were Frebrenta Orthodox Jews. Not true. It is not true. There were a sizable number of Hasidim, a sizable number in Lithuania and White Russia, Belarus, of Misnagdim. There were lots of people who were Orthodox, but there were lots of people who were very much like the American Jewish community. They did not have beards. They shaved their beards. They wore the standard Western clothing. They went to Polish language schools or Lithuanian schools, but particularly Polish language schools. They were trying to do what we are trying to do. That is to somehow meld modernity, a certain amount of secularism, and retain a sensibility of Jewish religiosity and of Jewish consciousness. That's the way most of our people are behaving in this period of time. So, and what we will do once we are emancipated is absolutely remarkable. That is, that fossil that Toynbee talked about will turn out to be very, very creative. Creative for ourselves and creative for the world. Number one, it is in the period of time that we have discussed in this month that Reform Judaism, Conservative Judaism, Modern Orthodoxy, the Reconstructionist movement, that dying people is able to adapt in a whole variety of ways. That is, some Jews remain ultra-Orthodox, some remain Orthodox, but 
In every country, there are Jews who stay within the fold, but believe that it is important to adapt the religion to changing circumstances. That's significant. And then they enter the political arena. Once the Jews are emancipated, they become political figures. They become politicians. Usually, they stand on the center and left. You're hard-pressed to hold up a hand with five fingers and to say that there are Jews on the right. In fact, there's a, one, there's a famous exchange where one, one Jewish politician says, there are no Jews on the right. That is, the right is not where we belong. Incidentally, the terms right and left come from the French Revolution because the more radical elements sat on the left wing and the more the right wing, right wing politicians sat on the right wing. So the point here in all of this is they enter the political arena and they are very, very important. Even in countries where you wouldn't think they would be important. The foreign minister of Weimar, the Weimar Republic, is Walter Rathenau. That is a Jew. He is assassinated, but he is, not only is he the foreign minister in the early 1920s until he is murdered, during World War I, he is what would be called the economic czar of the German war effort, and he is the one that enables Germany to last as long as it does in World War I. Everywhere you go, there are going to be Jews really involved in politics. Most embarrassing of all, of course, for some people, is going to be the Jewish role in, of course, the Communist Party and in the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. I think I told you one of the oldest Soviet jokes, that is Zinoviev, who is Jewish, talks to his brother-in-law Kamenev, who is Jewish, who talks to Trotsky. Now you know the joke can't be real, because Zinoviev and Kamenev hated Trotsky, and Trotsky hated Zinoviev and Kamenev. So much for religious com uh, camaraderie. So the point here is, the two men talk to Trotsky, and they say to Trotsky, let's kick Lenin out, and we'll have a minion. <laughs> there were so many communists, so many Jewish communists. So the point here is, again, wherever you go, even in our own country, and particularly in our own country, we will see Jews enter Congress, Jews become governors, Jews, in fact, becoming congressmen in some areas in the West where there really were very, very few Jews. So the point in all of this is, when it comes to, let us say, the, 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 the dynamism, the vibrancy of our people, that is, we take care of ourselves, that is, we, we, we change the religion or we adapt the religion to modernity in one fashion or another. Then we get involved in the political arena. And then, I think I've mentioned this to you, not a Burke's law of Jewish history or Jewish economic history, but Jewish capital is usually far more venturesome than Gentile capital. It is not because there's a gene on chromosome 23 that makes us better businessmen than anybody else. It is a consequence of restrictions that are placed upon us, particularly the restriction that we cannot own land. That's important because most of Europe is agriculturally based. The economies are agriculturally based. We cannot own land. We are not allowed to enter the civil service. We cannot attain officer rank in the armies, even when we're emancipated. Germany will emancipate its Jews in 1871, or approximately at that period of time, and no Jew, not even Rathnau, not even Rathnau, can rise above the rank of corporal in the German army. Jews do not become officers. So what, of course, where do they go? They go into industrial development. They go into what are called the so-called free professions, medicine, law, and accounting. When it comes to industrialization, let me give you some examples. I told you about Walter Rathnau. 
Walter Rathenau's father was Emil Rathenau. Now, he is one of those ironies. Thomas Edison was never known for his love for the Jews. Whether he was as vicious an anti-Semite as some people make him out to be, I'm not prepared to talk about this. But he was not known, he was no philo-Semite, let's put it that way. And yet, he goes to Paris, and Emil Rathnau, who is a well-to-do businessman, goes to see him in Paris and gets from Edison permission, I guess there must be some royalties, of course, involved, permission to use all of the Edison patents. And that's the beginning of German General Electric. Another man, a man by the name of Colbin. How many of you have been to Prague? Did you go to what is called the Spanish Temple? Ah, I tell you, that's why you should go with me. I take you to all these places. The Spanish Temple, it's not really a Spanish Temple. It's not a Sephardic Temple, but it's built in Moorish style. And in there are photographs. And believe it or not, this is something very difficult to believe. Rena Kahnheim is here. Rena Kahnheim is the wife of one of a great rabbi. Her husband, John Kahnheim, was with the rabbi at my synagogue for, for a number of years, and he's really a great man. And Rena knows Schenectady. She'll be surprised to know that in that Spanish temple, there is a picture of Schenectady. <laughs> because a man by the name of Colbin from Bohemia. He went to Schenectady, and he went to see Edison to get permission to use the patents in the Habsburg Empire. Wherever you go, the Hamburg-Lloyd steamship line is Jewish-owned. The Bleischroder family. Wherever you go, the Jews are going to play this very, very important role. And then they will do other things as well, in science, in mathematics, and in medicine. There was a year... I think less than 15 years ago, that every American Nobel Prize winner was of Jewish extraction. And I told you, I think I may have told you, I told another group, that from 1900 to 1930, Germany will win 30 Nobel Prizes. One third of the 30 are men of Jewish extraction. And the percentage, that is, that's an incredible percentage. When you think that in a Germany of 65 million people, the total Jewish population never exceeded 520,000. So in medicine, in mathematics, and in science, there are those remarkable achievements. But perhaps the greatest achievements of them all are the ones that we now take for granted. Those Jews, the scum of Europe, killed in the Holocaust by the millions, forced to run from one country to another, and then the greatest miracle, perhaps, of our lifetime, certainly of the, of the 20th century as far as Jews are concerned, and that is the Jewish people managed to rise from the ashes, in some cases literally rise from the ashes, and create the first Jewish state in 2,000 years. That is a remarkable achievement. It really is. The reasons for this, again, you can attribute some of it to the Holocaust, but not most of it. You can attribute it to the anti-Semitism, to the growing education of the Jews, to the development of Zionism, Theodore Herzl, a whole group of people, a whole group of four, a whole a myriad of forces will converge at the end of the 19th and the early part of the 20th century to lead on May 14th, 1948 to the creation of a Jewish state. That is a remarkable thing 
testifying once again to the dynamism of the Jewish people. And we're not Vestal Virgins anymore, in the sense that this is not 1948. It is the year 2011. We know that Israel has made mistakes. We know that there are certain problems in Israel. Everybody knows that. The problem between the religious and the secular, the role of the orthodox in society, the fact that a large number of people in Israel, including the Jewish population, go to sleep hungry every night. We know that. We know that the income gap is great. We also know that there probably, there may have been times when opportunities to achieve peace were missed. All of that is true, but one should always remember what the remarkable achievements of this first and only Jewish state are. Achievement number one, it is, this was the bottom line for Theodor Herzl. Incidentally, or parenthetically, this is the 150th anniversary of Herzl's birth. And what was the bottom line for Herzl? That there had to be a Jewish state as a place of refuge. One million Soviet Jews, 200,000 Romanian Jews, 250,000 Moroccan Jews, Jews, almost half a million Jews from the, from the Middle East, or the so-called Oriental countries, 250,000 Holocaust survivors. Israel takes all of our people in. Achievement number two, you know this as well as I do, especially here you know it. Israel is Silicon Valley East, in technology, in computers, in a whole host of areas. This country, which is devoid of natural resources, that doesn't have a population exceeding 7.5 million, has become an economic powerhouse. And then because I am a student of the Holocaust, I'm probably more sensitive to it and because I go to Poland at least twice a year. I may have said this to you, again, I'm repeating myself, but it is an important point. I go and I take the people, we go to where the Warsaw Ghetto was, we stand before the monument to Shmuel Ziegelborn, good man, good, decent guy, does a bad thing, but he's a good, decent guy. He's a, the leader, one of the leaders of the Jewish Workers Bund in Warsaw. The Polish underground smuggles him out to plead the cause of Jews and Poles in German-occupied Poland. He can't get, as we would say, to first base. He wants to go to number 10 Downing Street. They won't let him in. He hears that his wife and children have gone up the chimney at Treblinka. He takes a pistol and he blows his brains out. But before he does it, he writes an open letter. Perhaps by this terrible act, I can end the silence and save the last Jews of Poland. Here's where you see the importance of Israel. When there is no Jewish state, we are powerless. There is no country that will make it a primary aim to really save Jews or to rescue Jews. Go ahead 33 years, July 4th, 1976. Israeli planes land at the, uh, the airport in Entebbe and rescue Jewish captives. 13 years later, Israeli planes land, this time not with soldiers, but with social workers, nurses, and doctors, and they take out 13,000 Ethiopian Jews from Addis Ababa. That's what the state of Israel means. The Soviet Jewry movement is inconceivable without the state of Israel. Remember when I spoke to some of you? When I talked about what Ben-Gurion had done? Ben-Gurion is the man that tells the Knesset and tells the Jewish world, these people are not lost. And he sends Shlichim, he sends an ambassador secret, secretly to raise a sense of Jewish consciousness. And people from Israel come to the General Assembly of the Federations and say, you got to do something for these people or they will be lost. Now is the time to do it. That's what Israel means. It is also the only democratic state in the Middle East. They don't burn. That's right. Get right to the, right to the talk talkless. They don't burn mosques in Israel. Yes, a few mosques were burned on the West Bank. 
and the Israeli government specifically repudiated it, and rabbis from all over Israel came to the mosque, asked forgiveness, and said that they will help rebuild the mosque. They don't immolate gays and lesbians. They don't burn churches in Israel. It is a true democracy, one of the great democracies in the world, not only a, a the only democracy in the Middle East. These are impressive things. This is what our people did. And the other, of course, is what you did. That is, you helped create in this country the largest, the freest, the securest, the wealthiest Jewish community that has ever seen the light of day. We are the envy of every ethnic group in this country. Sometimes people make fun of the federations. There is no other group in this country that has an institution like the federation. We do wonderful things here. Not only does the federation do it, people like Ari Katz do it. This is what America is all about. What we have done, do you understand what we have done? We have created a Jewish institutional infrastructure in our country. We have saved Jews abroad. It's American Jewish money that saves hundreds of thousands of Jews in the former Soviet Union and in Eastern Europe from starvation. And we have also maintained and continue to sustain Israel with important political and financial support. That is, if I'm summarizing the last 250 years, we have been rocked and socked, we have been murdered, we have been raped, we have been forced from one country to the other, but we have not only not disappeared, we continue to be dynamic, continue to create, and to continue to be a contributing people. So, that's the past. What do you do about the future? Well, the honest answer is damned if I know. I've told you that on a number of occasions. So I will say this to you. That is, for all of its achievements, Israel faces a very, very difficult time. There was a very interesting juxtaposition. I'm a newspaper. I'm a news freak. I read every newspaper I can get my hands on. So when I'm here every day, I've bought the LA Times, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and USA Today. Today's thing was very interesting. The lead story in USA Today, on the front page, the lead story is about a group of young Egyptians, the young Egyptians, that led the revolt. They are now meeting with representatives of the army. And they are demanding of the army, number one, that all natural gas selling to Israel should cease. Number two, that the Egyptian government should take a tougher position in relation to Israel. What a tougher position means, I do not know. But it is clear that change is in the winds. Interestingly enough, it didn't make the front page of the New York Times. In fact, I don't even know. I have to be fair, I didn't read the whole Times today. It, it certainly did not make the front page of the New York Times. And for the student of the Holocaust, this brings back a very, very bad memory when the New York Times, during the Second World War, put news of what was happening to the Jews on page 16 and page 35, very, very rarely putting it on page 1. So this is a difficult time for Israel. So what I'm saying to you is, one of the things that has to be done is the continuation of financial and political support for the only Jewish state in the last 2,000 years. And as for us, what do we, what do we have to do? Again, we've got to take care of ourselves. We've got to create an institutional structure. We already have it in place. 
but there's room for more. Let me cut right to the chase. He didn't talk to me before, and I'm not, I don't have a percentage in, in, this, in this program that he has, has put together. You've got to support the program. It's as, simple, it's as simple as that. That's how we survive. And I must tell you, as I think I did make mention at least on one occasion, do not think for a single moment that Judaism is a pediatric religion. Do not worry all the time about your children and your grandchildren. Worry about yourselves. Lead a Jewish life as you define it. It's not for me and it's not for any rabbi to define it. And again, I don't know what's behind the curtain here, but if I was standing in a synagogue and I speak to you as a believer, as someone who is traditional, fairly traditional, if we were in a synagogue, I would turn around and say, you may think that in the Torah is a compilation of bubamites, of fairy tales. You're entitled to think that. I don't think that, but you're entitled to think that. But what you should know, fairy tale written by man, written by women, written by a committee, that's the genius of our people. That's what our people contributed to civilization. Ethical monotheism is our gift. Civilization took that first giant step, not in Athens, not in Rome, but in Jerusalem, or perhaps, or really, probably, somewhere in the Sinai Desert. What I'm trying to tell you, remember, for those of you who were at the lecture last night, I said to you, how did I end? With three words. Read, read, and read. So what I'm telling you is, you've got to go beyond that. You've got to do something else. Now, here is a true story from the Holocaust. It involves the, probably the greatest Jewish historian of the end of the 19th and the first part of the 20th century. This is Simon or Shimon Dubnov. Dubnov is the greatest of them all. All those historians, he's the greatest of them all. And poor Dubnov has fled Russia and has led a good life in the 20s and the 30s. As an older man, he's living in Riga. Comes the war, the Germans occupy Riga. And he's going to be killed in the ghetto. He's killed in Riga. He is reputed to have said to one of his students, his last words were, schreibt und verschreibt in Yiddish. Write and record what you have seen and what you have experienced. By the grace of God and by virtue of living in this country, you don't have to write and record about Jewish disasters and mass murder. Your job is to study and study and study. And the very last thing I will say to you, these are difficult times. They really are. Anti-Semitism in Europe is growing. The state of Israel is now once again probably going to be under a real state of siege. So my last word to you is the word that was said, or let us say, a variation of the words that was said by Joshua to our people when they crossed the Jordan. It is what we say when we conclude a book in the Torah. Chazak, chazak, venit hazek. Be strong, be strong, and let us strengthen ourselves for the difficult times ahead. Thank you very much.
Are there any questions? I have a question. Yes. Um, you talked about the, the Gentiles who felt that uh, Jewishness was in the blood. Yes. Then why did these people convert to Christianity? Like um, uh, um, Felix Mendelssohn and Mahler, and, because they, they, they wanted to get ahead in their fields, but they were still considered That's, Jews. She's right? asking the question, if people thought that the Jewishness was in their blood, then why did some Jews convert, right? right. That's the question. Right. Now, first of all, when Felix Mendelssohn and the Mendelssohn children and grandchildren converted, that's not what people were saying. They are converting at the end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century. The racial ideas of anti-Semitism in Central and Western Europe, that's a third and fourth quarter 19th century phenomenon. That's one thing. The other is, while there were people that adhered to the racial view, there were others that did not. That is, the church, for example. The Roman Catholic Church's position is always, it's very much like ours. If you convert to Judaism, you are considered to be a Jew, regardless of what you are before. The church's position is if you convert to Roman Catholicism, there's going to be, you are Catholic. Right, but to show you the limitations of that, there's a very, very interesting incident that occurs at the end of the 1930s. About 3,000 German Jews who converted to Roman Catholicism are trying to find refuge somewhere. This is a time when it's difficult to get in. A number of priests ask the Pope, can you do something for us? The Pope writes to the president of Brazil, Catholic country, to take in these Jews, to take, to take in these Catholics who had converted from Judaism. And the response of the Brazilian president is, they can convert 10 times, they are still Jews. So it means that you can advance in certain areas and in other areas you cannot. Now for those of you that are scientists to show you, I mean what, what the Nazis were doing, that is before the war, what the Nazis are doing are expelling from the universities all Jewish mathematicians, all Jewish physicists, and all Jewish chemists. A Nobel Prize winning German physicist who was not a Nazi, was not Jewish, and he was not a Nazi, actually had an audience with Adolf Hitler. And he told Hitler, you are destroying German science. And Hitler said, it's all right. In five years, ten years, we will recover. The important thing is to get the Jews out of Germany. Some people do not understand the ferocity, or the, for want of a better bad expression, the true believingness of the Nazis. These were not cynical ploys to mobilize the masses. These were true believers. You get a sense of this when Himmler talks to the Gauleiters in a famous speech at, at, at Poznan, which is now in, in Poland. And he says, uh, he, say, he says, it's a secret speech. You and I, he says to them, the Galileans and the SS men, you and I know what it is to stack up the bodies, men, women, and children, by the thousands. We can't, we can't say this to anybody else, but we did it. And we did it for the German people, and we did it for humanity. You can't kill people in those numbers. And in the horrible, horrible treatment, I, I, again, this is not the time to talk about it. It is not simply murder. It is murder with, with, with a stock. And that, that can only be explained by the role of ideology 
really in the Third Reich. I didn't mean to spin that out, but that's... Are there any other questions? Yes, I'm sorry. You talked about the town of Auschwitz and the picture of the Hasidim and the picture of the more secular Jews. Yes. Um, and I was surprised that they were living in the same community. I mean, here today, we typically don't have Hasidim interacting, living in the same community with more secular Jews. Was that the case then, or did they... That was the case. More? That was the case then. She's asking... Uh, she's saying that uh, today the Hasidim live in their own communities, but not always. Not always. It all depends where you are. For example, in my community, there's a large uh, Chabad contingent, but they live with everybody. The are different, yeah, the but other yeah, the others. That's right. The Gera Hasidim live all by themselves. But in many of the towns, that is in the smaller towns, Auschwitz was a small town. Where else can they live? In the town next door. Uh, the town, well, the town next door may not have a number of Jews in it. This is, they do not isolate themselves from the community. They do not. They live side by side. And if you've seen pictures, if you've seen pictures of the Warsaw Ghetto, you will see people in traditional dress walking alongside of people. In, the, in Warsaw itself, before the war, I mean, there were Jewish neighborhoods in Warsaw. One out of three people in Warsaw before World War II was Jewish. And there were you see pictures on the street, pictures of people who are just walking side by side in Krakow too, in Kazimierz. You'll see people in Western suits, and then you'll see the men with the long beards. And did they come together and work together? For uh, that I did not say. <laughs> no. When it comes to working together, there are some real problems there. There are some very, very real problems. Uh, they have to do with a belief that. Again, the, the Yiddish word would be that these people, that in the eyes of the Hasidim or the very religious Jews, these people, the secular people, are apokorsim. That is, they, they, they simply do not believe. You can't have anything to do with them. So when a, what is called, Reform Judaism doesn't sink deep roots into Eastern Europe. What sinks deep roots is what would be called progressive Judaism. What distinguishes that from the, the Orthodox is the rabbi gives a sermon on a weekly basis and he gives it in Polish. He doesn't give it in Yiddish. Uh, the men and women continue to sit separately. Some of them may use an organ. And a good deal of the service is in the Polish language. So what all, this, this is this difference. And so sometimes some of the people who are in the Orthodox community will cross the street rather than even go in front of that, of that synagogue. So there is a great deal of there is a great deal of tension there. There really is. But to show you how you never know, I, I, there's, a, there's a very interesting story from the 1920s. The big debate in Warsaw in the Jewish community is, should we give money to the yeshivot? The orthodox yeshivot. And the, the socialists and the people on the left, don't give them a dime. Don't give them a dime. And the orthodox, of course, say, we deserve it, we're really Jewish, da, 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 and so on. And then, all of a sudden, one of the leading socialists raises his hand and says, I agree. Give the yeshivot the money. And the other socialist says, why are you doing this? So he turns to the other socialist and says, I know you, you know me. I went to the yeshiva. You went to the yeshiva. We all went to the yeshiva. They'll go to the, the kids will go to the yeshiva, and then they'll come to us. <laughs> So uh, there, is, there, there is a great deal of tension, and Zionism also becomes an obstacle. 
that is, for the overwhelming majority of Orthodox Jews in Europe and in our country, particularly in Europe before World War II, Zionism is anathema. You don't touch it. You don't touch it with a 10-foot pole. There are a number of Orthodox rabbis in the Mizrahi movement, but they are the exception. That is, the traditional view is that a Jewish state will be created, comes the Messianic age. And anything before that is forcing the hand of God or anticipating the will of God. Anything else? When are you coming back? Oh, no. <laughs> yes. yes, did you have a question? I'm sorry, did you have a question? Oh, you did. I'm sorry for well, well, mentioning this, isn't this one of the bigger problems Israel has? And sometimes I wonder if it's not a bigger problem than the outside forces. I'm not sure what you mean by the question. Oh, what you were just talking about, the division between the Orthodox... All right, the internal difficulties in Israel are something that it is a very... Like everybody knows this. It is a very, very serious problem. If Herzl were to come back today... If he arrived, somehow the spirit descended. <laughs> and somehow he knew Hebrew. <laughs> and he, he listened to what was going on in Israel. He would be upset by that. That would really upset him. If you, you can read it very, very quickly. It is not a, a great work of literature. But the one novel written by Herzl is really very, very important. Das Altneuland, The Old New Land. And you can get it in an English translation. And it lays out Herzl's view. What would Herzl have been ecstatic about? Silicon Valley East. He talked about the importance of the role of science. He talked about the role of agriculture. He talked about religious freedom. You want to know one of the great ironies of history? The history of Zionism? Does Israel have religious freedom? The answer is yes. If you're a Muslim, no restrictions. If you're a Christian, no restrictions. If you're a Baha'i, no restrictions. But if the prince of darkness comes to visit you, it's got to be an orthodox rabbi that puts you in the ground. You want to get married, it's got to be an orthodox rabbi that does it. That's a problem. The problem between the second... But to show you that things have gotten better, if I was speaking to you 35 years ago, that problem would exist, but everybody used to talk about the second Israel, the problems between the Sfadim and the Ashkenazim. That problem, there's still some tension... But that's gone. That's time and the Israeli economy have by and large erased that. So the country has made progress. You are absolutely right. These internal problems are very, very serious. And so too is something else. We all are Zionists, at least in the American <coughs> definition of the term. The Israelis have got to clean up their act in terms of corruption. It is a shanda that the president of Israel can be convicted of sexual harassment. That is a shanda. It's a shanda that a number of prime ministers have been accused of, of, of corruption. That's not right. It's not morally right, and it's politically dangerous to the state of Israel. But again, when you take everything into account, that the Jewish people have been able to create a state of their own with remarkable achievements, living in a perpetual state of siege, and one can say unequivocally that that first and only Jewish state is far closer to Athens than it is to Sparta. Thank you very much.